Well, good evening and welcome to Steadfast on this Labor Day Monday. I'm so glad that you are here with me. It's a joy to get to sharing God's Word together. As we do tonight, I want to think back to one of the most famous marketing campaigns, which led to one of the most infamous marketing decisions that's happened in the world. And that is the Pepsi Challenge. You've probably had a barbecue this weekend or, or had some celebratory activities and you quite likely popped open a can of soda at some point during that and it may have been a Pepsi or a Coke. Well, years ago, 30, 40, almost 50 years ago now, I guess, Pepsi decided to try to overcome the market advantage of Coke by proving to people, or so it said, that Pepsi tasted better. And their thought was a lot of people were loyal to Coca-Cola, but they didn't really prefer Coca-Cola. And so they would have unlabeled cups with, with Pepsi and Coke in it. They'd have some random letter on it so they could identify which one was which and t reveal it to the person. And they'd have the people try the Pepsi and the Coke and see which one tasted better. And the funny thing that happened was that a great deal of people, the majority of people, in fact, even the ones who said they had been drinking Coke all their lives and preferred it, said they preferred Pepsi. Well, Coke at first tried to make fun of this and mock it, but over time it grew to the point where their executives became quite worried because the Pepsi challenge seemed to be working. People were drinking more Pepsi and Coke sales were diminishing, especially amongst young people, which worried them about what was going to happen in the future with Coke. And so Coke embarked on the idea of reformulating its cola and came up with the infamous new Coke, which other than a Stranger Things tie-in a few years ago, has been absent from shelves for years because when it came out as the answer to Pepsi, because Pepsi was sweeter than Coca-Cola, and so they'd make Coke sweeter, it turned out people didn't like sweeter Coca-Cola. They wanted the, the quote-unquote real thing. And so it turned into a disaster for Coke. Coke had lost sight of who it was and what it was called to be, what was really important. And in doing so, they ended up trying to respond to a marketing campaign of the moment, even though they were still the largest soda company in the world, by changing who they were, changing the, the recipe that controlled their success, thinking somehow it was going to work. A lot of times we do that in the world. Because in scripture we find a very clear recipe, a very clear secret about how the universe works, which is that God is in control of it. That God is the one who's in control of our lives, the lives of our churches, the lives of our nations, the lives of our universe. All of it is in God's control. And yet in the moment, we feel like we see these Pepsi challenges, these challenges that maybe things would taste better if God weren't in control, or maybe things would go more smoothly if, if we took control in different ways. And we, we lose sight of who's really in control, what the recipe for a truly blessed life is. And as we turn back to Psalm 2 tonight and we continue this series, The Nation's Rage, we're going to be thinking about how God is in control and what happens when we lose sight of that. So let's come before our God and ask for his guidance as we do so. Let's pray. Father, may we always remember the recipe of the blessed life. You've made it clear in your word. It's a life that seeks after you, that understands that you are in control and not in control of some distant all-powerful, absolute monarch or dictator, but as a loving, loving Heavenly Father who, who's actually with us, who loves us, 
protects us, who sent his son to die for us. May we not lose sight of that recipe, Lord. And and in those places, Father, where, where we have, for all of us do, may you guide us tonight by the power of your Holy Spirit to see more clearly your control, your love, and the need for us to recognize it in our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. God's control over all the powers of the world is where we pick up tonight. We, we saw last week at the beginning of Psalm 2 the picture of those who oppose God, and, and they, they say, let's loose the chains. We're going to get rid of God. And in that, it re- reveals that they've missed who God really is. But the other thing they've missed is, is, is how powerful God is. They, they think they can actually do it, that they can push him off. And, and not only are they wrong that that's a bad idea, that they're missing out on God's love and care, they're also foolish for thinking they can. And that's what we see when we turn to verse 4. Psalm 2, four says, He who sits in the heavens laughs, the Lord holds them in derision. You see these kings, the powers, and we talked about how it's, it's not just leaders, but everybody is included in these first few verses of, of people that want to get out of God's control. That we all fall into that trap of thinking, well, maybe I could run things better. We all fall into it, and we all are going to suffer when we do because we're not benefiting from the joy of being in relationship to God. But here's the thing. We might think if we start to picture God more like any earthly leader, well, what happens if the people trying to toss off his control succeed? Certainly Satan thought he could. And generally speaking, if we try to take control of something, we think we actually can take control of it. What it says here in verse 4 is that God sees our human attempts to take control to say that we're going to be masters of, of our own destinies. And he laughs in derision because it's so ridiculous what's happening there. Not only are we responding to him ungratefully and hatefully and fleeing from the very things that could bring us joy and blessing in life, it's ridiculous because it doesn't actually work. We don't have the power to take control. The greatest earthly powers that that shake their fists at God are are only there because God allows them to remain for the time for whatever reason in his good plans. Earthly powers aren't worth giving attention to. And God doesn't, other than to laugh here, he doesn't say, "Uh uh-oh, I wonder if this time, if this time this movement is going to take over. If this other world religion is somehow going to supplant people who worship me, if if this kingdom or, or this nation or this political movement or this social movement or whatever that seems to oppose me, maybe this time it's going to actually win and I'm going to lose. God doesn't do that. He looks down at our attempts to somehow wrest control from him and he laughs because th- those things are so puny. They're so powerless. It's like when the people at the Tower of Babel said they're going to build this tower and they're going to come up to heaven. And it says, there's this beautiful bit of of dry humor right in the middle of Genesis. It says, God had to come down from heaven to look at what they were building. Why? Because this giant, mighty tower they thought that was going to prove how powerful they were, you couldn't even really see it from heaven. And of course, God sees everything, but he's essentially being sarcastic there. He comes down and says, hmm, uh, yeah, they're building something down there. That's how every one of our attempts where we think that we've taken the power. That's how it looks to God. 
And when we see others and we, we fear somehow we need to help God out because these others are going to somehow, their, their, their power is so strong, they're going to somehow supplant God. We need to understand it's just one of those itty bitty little towers. It's not worth the attention we give to all the things that we think are enemies of God. We're, we're wasting time. We're wasting time. We could be focused on God, on these things that can't actually win in the end. Peter did that. We talked about Peter last night on, in our Sunday night service, and Peter had a lot of trouble at times focusing on what was really going on and who was really in control. And we see that, for example, on the night that Jesus was betrayed. Take a look at John chapter 18, verse 10. It says, Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? You see, Peter is looking at this force coming to arrest Jesus, and, and he wants to help Jesus. I mean, he has the right motive. He thinks, I'm going to somehow defend my rabbi, my teacher, my Messiah. Peter's already made a confession that Jesus is Lord and God. He, I'm going to defend my God. I'm going to do whatever it takes. I'm pulling out my sword. And, and and for one, even against just the, the guards that are coming, it's a little ridiculous. Could Peter really do all that much? But how much more ridiculous if he believes what he said about Jesus? If, if Jesus is whom Peter had confessed that he is, then Peter should know Jesus doesn't need a single sword to triumph. The only reason that anyone could possibly take away Jesus is that Jesus is allowing them to. As part of the Father's plan, Jesus was going to be arrested, but but not because he lacked power. That same discussion goes on later on in the Gospel of John as Jesus meets Pilate, and Pilate thinks that he has all the control over Jesus, and Jesus says, no, you only have control because my Father's given you control. You see, in an odd way, when we, we think we have to somehow take up arms, we have to take up worldly means to defend our God, we're essentially denying God. When we go on social media and we use the techniques of hatred and, and, and mud smearing and all that stuff that the world does, we're saying God isn't powerful enough. When we go into the world and we think our churches need to somehow get worldly and, and smart and, and, and apply the things of the world because otherwise we're going to lose, what are we doing? We're saying God isn't powerful enough. Even when we allow it to creep into our hearts, maybe what happens if the majority of people in our nation aren't Christian anymore. What are we saying? We're basically saying, I don't believe that God can overcome this. Now, we should share the heart that we see in Jesus. He wept over Jerusalem and its unfaithfulness. It's okay to be sad when people turn from Jesus. It's okay to, to mourn that our nation, there aren't as many people in it that, that follow Jesus as there once were. But let's not move from sadness over a current picture of sin into the fear that maybe God can't overcome it. See, that's the problem we run into. And, and what we need to do is instead turn where Peter turns ultimately. We looked at this last night. Take a look at 2 Peter chapter 3 once again. Peter says, But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Peter's writing people who are going to suffer, who are going to be persecuted. He says, this is what you need to do. Grow in Jesus. Focus on the glory that he has, because his glory is going to be eternal. 
this is the same man who who years before had taken out that sword who was going to use physical blunt force to somehow protect Jesus who now realizes you know people are going to persecute us they might even kill us but they're not going to take away Jesus's glory and they're not going to take away my membership in his family my belonging to him Peter was holding on at the end there he was holding on and, and believing that that the Jesus whom he confessed as, as Lord and God really was the Jesus whom he served, that bad things happened, that for some reason in God's plan he was allowing them to happen, but it didn't mean that God was ultimately out of control. Just as these nations think, we're going to rise up and cast off the control of, of the Lord. They can maybe appear to be successful in a moment, but it won't last when the Soviet Union rose and, and declared itself an atheist nation, and it seemed to be this huge chunk of what had been Christendom that was being ripped off and made into a barren spiritual wasteland, it looked like it was almost unstoppable, and yet now it's in the dust heap of history. And more evil nations will rise, more nations will fall. None of them, ultimately, are the way that God's going to triumph. He'll use nations, he'll use people, He'll use leaders. He'll use us. But may we not live thinking that, that God's control is something that's just teetering on the edge. You know, God looks down at these things that think they can take control and he laughs. There are a lot of questions on that Pepsi challenge I was talking about earlier on exactly why it went the way it did. One of the things that, that people have come up with that sort of makes sense of how it went the way it did and yet people responded so negatively to, to the new Coke was that people prefer something that's sweeter on the first sip. You see, if you go in and do a taste test, you don't sit there and drink a 12-ounce can of one soda, and then you go and get another can, you drink another 12-ounce can, and say, well, if I'm drinking a large quantity of this, what do I like? No, what you do is you have a little sample, and you take it and think, hmm, that's interesting. And then maybe you're given a, a drink of water, so I can clear out to the palate, and then you take another sip. And it's been found that when you're only getting a little bit, most people will react more positively to something that has a stronger sweet flavor because it's awakening your taste buds. You, you sense it in the moment. But what do we sometimes find when things are really sweet? We get tired of them faster because we don't want tons and tons of that. And so for most people, it would seem, if they actually drink more of a soda, they'd prefer a Coke because it isn't as sweet. You see, when, when Coke thought this Pepsi challenge had control over them, they, they started changing the things that were actually making them a success because they didn't actually understand what was happening. They were looking at that momentary flash when someone takes that little sip and, and forgot that a lot of people, if they're going to drink a whole can of soda or a whole bottle, would, would prefer something that's less sweet. And even if they actually liked the Pepsi better, that they liked the brand Coke so much better that many people will buy it anyway just because they're loyal to the brand. They didn't need to fear as much as they did. They should have been aware of it, maybe responded to it. Just as, as people oppose God, we should be aware of what's going on and, and in a loving and Christ-like manner respond. But we shouldn't be constantly living like it's going to overthrow God's kingdom. We need to ask when we're looking for security, where do we turn? Do we go running to the thing that, that we, we, the moment something doesn't seem to be working quite right, we go running to the thing that looks strong and secure on this earth, or do we run to God's kingdom and, and trust that the king is in control? Is it really something that's opposing God that's going to last and overcome him? Or is it just that initial sweet burst? 
Scripture tells us it's that initial sweet burst, that, that God is looking at these challenges, even the most spectacular ones, and he knows they don't have any threat to him. We need to understand that some of these things will happen, that this is how the world works as it's broken. But someday God's power is going to be fully revealed and those momentary bursts of sweetness that seem to be triumphing aren't going to hold the ultimate control. That's what we see as we turn to verse 5. Psalm 2. The psalmist goes on, Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Now, if we stopped at verse 4 and God's laughing, even laughing in derision, we might say, well, maybe this is all just a big humorous farce. We should just laugh. Oh yeah, people are opposing God. It doesn't really matter. But as I mentioned, Jesus did weep over Jerusalem. Why did he do that? If, if there's no threat, why did it bother him? It bothered him because there's a broken relationship with God. There, it bothered him because he would ultimately come and judge and cast off those who opposed the kingdom of God. This is serious. Not serious in the sense that God's kingdom is at, is threatened, it might fall, but serious because the lives of those people who think they're in control are at stake. Are they going to experience eternal life with our Lord and experience the joy of being united with their creator, or are they going to be cast away? We need to recognize that while at the moment God allows these taste tests to be going on, and, and at times it even looks like it's not going in his favor, Someday he's going to declare, finally, it's time for his victory. And, and when he does, there are consequences. The true power is coming. And that's what we see in that declaration in verse 6. Once again, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. God says, I'm going to install my king. Now, what are we talking about there? Well, we're talking about the Messiah. So in other words, God the Father is going to install his son, Jesus, as the king both in heaven and on earth, that someday everyone, whether they want to follow him or not, will have no doubt Jesus is in control. And what it's picturing there with this picture on, on the holy hill on Mount Zion is that someday there will be a visible manifestation, a local picture that we can see. We'll actually get to see Jesus reigning. It won't simply be something we confess. It won't simply be the Spirit working in our hearts. Jesus will actually physically reign. And so God's going to provide that someday. And in the time of the Psalms, there, there were the examples of the kings. They weren't the, the Messiah, but they were the Lord's anointed. They represented him. They showed God's kingdom in its, in its most latent form. Here, here's an example of what's coming. It's not here yet. It's just this little often unfaithful kingdom, and yet it's here. And then Jesus comes and we celebrate that every Christmas. We're looking forward to that season soon. What are we celebrating? Well, we get a lot more localized proof. We see God the Son dwelling on earth, going to the cross for us as we celebrate Easter, that, that he took on sin for us and triumphed over death for us. We see that happen. We see all the witnesses testifying to that that lead to the formation of the church. And then the church today in this moment is those, we are those who represent that king on earth while we await his return. When people look to the church and the very fact that it exists for someone who was crucified and put down and should have been forgotten in history if he were anything other than God himself, when people look at that, what do we do? We testify, as we were talking about in our Sunday night series that we just wrapped up, 
that we're citizens of heaven, that the king is in control, he is reigning, and someday that will be unmistakable. And so it'd be a great day if you haven't trusted in Jesus, if our friends and family haven't trusted in Jesus, for all of us to trust in the king who is returning. Don't just take the little sip and say, ah, the sweetness of, of following the world instead of Jesus seems really great. Look to the whole can, look to the whole bottle and say, can I stand all that sweetness? But oftentimes we lose that in the moment. We zoom in on, on, on what's going wrong in the world and we think it looks like things are up in the air. Maybe I need to look out for myself because is God really going to triumph? It reminds me, if, you, if you're a shutterbug and you have a camera that has a zoom on it, most of us use our smartphones most of the time now, and they do have a zoom function. It doesn't generally zoom in that much, but if you've used a camera with a, a zoom or you have one of those camera phones that actually has like a 10 or 20 times zoom. I know some of those exist out there, but if you use a really strong magnification zoom, like a, a 300, 400, 500 millimeter equivalent zoom, if you know what that's talking about, one of those long guys, one thing that you'll find in that that always strikes me is, is sort of amazing is if it's one where you can zoom back out, you, you pull it out and, and you can see the whole landscape and you can see this little, say, hawk flying in the, in the distance and you want to take a picture of him. And so I'll zoom in. And if I'm tracking and I'm looking at him the whole time I'm zooming in, I can find him and then I can hopefully take that picture. But if he's flying a little too fast, he flies off and I start trying to move around. I'm zoomed all the way in. I've focused on that faraway thing. I can't even find it anymore because there's, now I, I've made everything so big that every single bit uh, of the sky is so vast that... I can't catch up with that bird. I need to zoom back out, get perspective, and then try to zoom in again. That's what happens to us in life. We we have the overall perspective of Scripture, and then we, we start seeing, oh, this thing contradicts what's going on in Scripture. I'm going to deal with it. And we zoom in on it, and it's moving around, and we start following it, and we get lost in the sky. We can't find that bird flying anymore because we're so zoomed in. But now we're just staring at blank space, at blank sky, We've lost the perspective of Scripture, and we've lost even the thing we were trying to deal with. But if we can calm ourselves down and realize that whatever threats to the Scriptures that we see out there aren't going to overcome God's kingdom, that the nations can rage all they want, but God's laughing at them because it doesn't matter in the long run of what happens to the kingdom, then we can start to feel peace. And then we can deal with those things, realizing, well, in what way does it matter? It matters because God wants to see those people come to know him too. It's interesting how we lose that perspective, but we need to remember that God is in control, that the secret recipe is there and it's not going anywhere and it will triumph. And so we need to quit losing sight. When he feels like he's not in control, it's not because God's lost control. It's because we've lost sight of his control. We're looking at that blank space. We need to zoom out and look again and see the overall perspective and see that God is in control. He's in control of your life tonight. He's in control of mine. And he always will be. So let us trust him either for the first time or continue to trust him tonight, experiencing that peace that we find in the one who's in control. Will you join me in prayer? Lord, sometimes it's really hard to, to stay focused on you and your control. We, we see all these threats. We see all these uncertainties. We zoom in on them. And the next thing we know, we've lost all perspective. We have no idea what we're looking at feels like everything's out of control and that you're out of control and we don't know what to do. But Lord, would you help us to recognize that you are in control? 
And because you're in control, we can have peace. Lord, you help us to take the things we're holding on to, thinking somehow we can we can help you, like Peter tried to help by by cutting off that servant's ear. Those things that we think that we need to do to somehow protect your kingdom, would you help us to see that your kingdom's not going anywhere? And then would you take us to the next step, that once we recognize that, that the reason that we interact with the world, the reason we, we join you in sorrow over sin isn't because it might overcome you, because we want to see more people escape it and experience your presence. Lord, would you help us to have that perspective today? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I hope this was an encouragement to you tonight. And, and if it was, let me encourage you. Would you please share this video? Let others know that they can hear about the God who is in control, the God who is with them, the God who always will be with them. And, and you can do that by, by sharing it and certainly also by inviting someone to join you either virtually online or maybe they can sit down at the computer or the television with you next week and, and watch. Together we can encourage each other about the God who overcomes the nations. Next week, we're going to be thinking about the Messiah, the, the one who comes, the one who came, Jesus, who's also going to come again. And we know he's going to come, and so we can trust in that. In the meantime, I'd encourage you, please join us on Sunday. Sunday, we are beginning a brand new series, The Kingdom Now. It's going to be great. We're going to be looking at the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. We, we began that as we launched in-person services a few months ago, and we're going to be back in the Sermon on the Mount thinking of how do we live the kingdom now with that confidence of kingdom citizens, with that confidence of, of those who, who know that the nations can rage and, and nothing's going to defeat God. How do we do that? Well, we listen to what Jesus said, and we go and do it with the confidence that he's with us doing it. So please come and join us at 5.30 p.m. on Sunday night. You can join us in person or online as you are available. It's always great to see you. Also, would you please let me know if there's any way I can be praying for you, you have any questions, feel free to shoot me an email at the email address on screen or leave a comment in the comments below. It's a joy to hear from you. I hope you have a wonderful and blessed week, and I hope to see you on Sunday for the Kingdom Now as that begins, and then back here Monday as we think about the Messiah as we continue in Psalm 2. hope you have a wonderful and blessed rest of your holiday and your week. Thank you.